When I stand on the mountain and I say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. And that's the last thing in the world you want me to do. I knew that people would die. I knew that there would be killing. Our acts cannot be forgiven. Every one of you out there has tried to kill me for the last, for the last 25 years and I'm still here. Ha, ha, ha. Now what? <laughs> All right, what's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 107 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Saturday, September 1st, 2018. My name is Josh Cannon, and tomorrow I will be 30 years old. Wow. Well, happy birthday. Thank you, Mike. And that's my co-host, Mike, who will probably also be turning 30 soon, I would imagine. Well, next, uh, next year, but yeah. Don't don't try to make yourself seem younger than me. <laughs> you're you we're we are I I may die a few months before you, but you won't be far behind. I know it doesn't work like that. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow oh, for all I know. But I hope that doesn't happen. Anyway, yeah. You know, fucking birthdays. I could honestly care less or I couldn't I could not care less cuz people say I could care less all the time, but that means that they could actually care less, so they do care a little. Anyway, getting caught up in the semantics of that. No, I don't really give a shit about birthdays. I never have. I never really wanted to do that, uh, throw birthday parties. In fact, I felt more like pressured to do birthday parties uh, because it just seemed more of an introvert. Well, I mean, I'm an intro. I'm an introvert by nature, but I'm constantly str- trying to be an extrovert. You know, I'm, I'm I I have such a desire to be an extrovert, but my natural instincts are always introversion for sure. And I, I never want to be that kid that had the birthday party and like two people showed up. You invite like thirty people and two people show up, and it's like super awkward and like. Just throwing parties in general is kind of a hard thing for me because, like, you're kind of the master of ceremonies because it's your party, you know? So it's like I feel all this pressure that people should be having fun or be entertained. And, like, I. Well, for me, I mean, with my birthday, it was just usually just like, oh, birthday presents. Like, that was the main thing. It wasn't like parties. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about as a kid. Um, I'm just talking about throughout. My even my adult, you know, my twenties. Well, even as an adult, even in my twenties, it's like presents or money. I don't really care about parties. Shit. You still get presents for shit. your birthday? Uh I've gotten some before, but mainly kind of what happens is either my dad'll send me like a card or something in the mail with like a gift card, or my parents will get me some stuff. Like I'll be like, Hey, I'd like to get this for my birthday and they'd be like, Okay, sure. Um so still do some stuff for Christmas. But most of the time, I'm like doing stuff myself, you know? It's like I'm buying my own birthday presents. But I kind of do that throughout the year anyway. So it's like, it's not as like, man, like my birthday, like I have to go out and get something. It's like, well, I already have a lot. So there's no like uh, themed like tablecloth and plates nope. and, and hats for everyone. Nope. <laughs> No Mike, way. Mike's sitting there with his grandma and his mom and his like uncle and shit, and you're just blown into that. Nope, nope. Um, I I would think uh, if 
you know, if it was feasible and if I had the the means to do it, you know, an unsolved mysteries themed birthday party would be fun. I think I think you would appreciate that. That like would be awesome. Unsolved mysteries and the surprise. The, the surprise yeah. would be like, but like we all get like you, there's some kind of like thing you plan out for all your guests, like some kind of mystery. Yeah. And at the end, when we finally get to the end of the mystery and we dig up, your, you know, a hole in your yard, you're actually like dead in the hole, and that's like the big like finale. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. And then it no. becomes like a murder thing, like who killed Mike, you know? No. No, that's not what I was thinking of. But then, thinking but no, like, and then and then it comes full circle cuz then like but you're not really dead and you go into the bathroom and you paint your face like ghostly white and then you like start <laughs> okay. this fog machine and you're like, "Oh, I'm a ghost now." No, you just do the the I do my impression of the ghost from that uh segment. You know, it sounded like he was constipated or something. You know, just paint paint myself all up in white and wear a shroud. It'd be like, Ugh! Yeah, have, have your mom click on the light in the kitchen right at the right time, and as soon as she does, you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> By that point, only I've hung around. Everyone's left because it's so lame, and I'm like, oh, it's all right, Mike. You A for yeah. effort, you know. that. Yeah, no, that no, would be No, cool. really what I, I was thinking is like, it's just an Unsolved Mysteries theme party. You got the the soundtrack playing you know you have people dressed in trench coats oh yeah that'd be awesome <laughs> everyone has to wear one of those dusters that robert stack <laughs> used to wear yeah that'd be dope did i just say and dope and then there's unsolved mysteries uh segments playing on tvs and stuff yeah. so i always thought it was weird whenever somebody does like a theme thing and they have tvs playing in the background and no one's fucking watching it it's almost like i almost want to just go over to the tv and like shut it off and be like yeah you could save but if it was unsolved mysteries would you I don't know. It's like I, I hate like that's like that's like I'm sorry, folks. We're rambling right now, and we're we're gonna get to Charles Manson here in a second. But I just got done watching a shit ton of documentaries about him, and I'm in a dark place right now, so I'm trying to crawl my way back into a kind of burnt out. Yeah, yeah a little a little burnt place. out. I'm trying to get to a place of uh, levity uh, with with uh, this before I dive back into the darkness that is Charles Manson. But uh, no, like, when, you know, like on Christmas, whenever you'd open presents and, and someone's always insistent that there's some fucking stupid music playing in the background. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like, <laughs> why turn on music? Just don't have you. We don't need music. Who get, Nobody cares about the music. Everybody only cares about the presents and exchanging presents that they bought for other people. Nobody, you know, I don't know. That's just me. I'm very nitpicky, though. So as you can clearly tell. All right, so anyway, we are still in cult month, which is now leak spilling into uh, September. Um, well, yeah, we said it was probably going to be more than one month, I yeah, because there's so many cults out there. So many cults, so little time. That's what I always say. This is the yeah. first time I've actually said that. So, but anyway, we're into cult month, folks, and oh, oh boy, boy, oh boy. You know, it's, it started off deceptively simple. Heaven's Gate was like. You know, that was like a, a few documentaries and it's like, OK, I, I got the synopsis of what this is all about. Easy to talk about. Crazy, you know, uh, science, Mr. Magoo looking guy who was crazy. Then we got into Jonestown again. That one was a little easier, a little more straightforward. Now we get to this fucker, Charles Manson and his family. And there is just so much. Uh, just so much good bits in here that you just don't really want to miss anything. Because, like, if you really want to cover 
the store. But you are going to miss a lot. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Yeah. Because in order to cover everything, this would be a multi-part podcast and not just two parts, like three to four parts, like easily. You easily. Could do that. Yeah, easily. Yeah, you could break it down. So what we're going to try to do is condense uh, various documentaries we've seen, uh, Wikipedia, just any kind of like resource. Um, I'm going to try to condense it down into kind of one story. Now, now I will say right here and now that the uh, aspect that I found most fascinating about Charles Manson was his connection with the Beach Boys. And I started doing my own research on that, and, and that became so goddamn extensive that that is going to be a Patreon exclusive uh, that I'm just going to do on my own because... You know, it, it's it's not as interesting unless you kind of care about the Beach Boys to a certain extent. But I don't know. It still kind of is, though. And, and honestly, it's it could tie in with the main podcast. I might actually throw little bits and pieces of that research into this main podcast. But yeah, so that's going to be a Patreon bonus thing. So if you want to know really in-depth Manson's connection with the Beach Boys, specifically Dennis Wilson, the drummer, then you can uh, follow or... Donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. And while you're at it, might as well join our Facebook group, which is free. And that's um, if you go to groups, the group section in Facebook and you type in uncovering unexplained mysteries, you will find us. And there are things in there that will be of great interest to you that I will not mention on here. So um, we are going to start this off with talking about Charles Manson's uh, childhood. And now this is from Wikipedia, and this is just to kind of give you a base of uh, the kind of the shitty childhood he had. Charles Manson was born to an unmarried 16-year-old named Kathleen Manson Bauer Cavender, uh, who went down in the Guinness World of Records as a woman with the most last names. So just kidding. Um, He was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and at first he was named No Name Maddox. Apparently they didn't give him a name. Um, Manson's biological father appears to have been Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr., against whom Kathleen Maddox filed a paternity suit that resulted in an agreed judgment in 1937. Manson may never have known his biological father. Scott worked intermittently in local mills and also had a local reputation as a con artist. Oh, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. He allowed Maddox to believe he was an army colonel, although Colonel was merely his given name. When Maddox told Scott she was pregnant, he told her that he had been called away on army business. <laughs> That's so sleazy. After months, she realized he had no intention of returning. In August of 1934, before Manson's birth, Maddox married William Eugene Manson whose occupation was listed on Charles's birth certificate as a laborer at a dry-cleaning business. Maddox went on drinking sprees for days at a time with her brother Luther, leaving Charles with a variety of babysitters. They were divorced on April 30, 1937, when a court accepted Manson's charge of gross neglect of duty. On August 1, 1939, Maddox and Luther's girlfriend, Julia Vickers, spent the evening drinking with Frank Martin, a new acquaintance who appeared to be wealthy. Maddox and Vickers decided to rob him, and Maddox phoned her brother to help. They were incompetent thieves and were found arrested within hours. At the trial, seven weeks later, Luther was sentenced to ten years in prison, and Kathleen was sentenced to five years. 
Manson was placed in the home of an aunt and uncle in McMechan, West Virginia. His mother was paroled in 1942. Manson later characterized the first weeks after she returned from prison as the happiest time in his life. Manson's family moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where Manson continually played truant and his mother spent her evenings drinking. She was arrested for grand larceny, but was not convicted. After moving to Indianapolis, Maddox started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, where she met an alcoholic named Lewis, who apparently had no first name. It was just named Lewis, whom she married in August 1943. I mean, yeah, I mean, hey, why not? Marry a a drunk who doesn't even have a first name. That's a perfect relationship. That's that's one that's going to be built to last. As well as constantly playing truant. I don't know what the hell that word truant. is. It, truant. That's truant. something. That's somebody who kind of like. I know in in school terms it means someone who's like skipping school and shit. Okay. All right. So that's probably what it is. Uh, Manson began stealing from stores and his home. In 1947, Maddox looked for a temporary foster home for Manson, but she was unable to find a suitable one. She decided to send him to the Gilbalt School for Boys in Terry Hout, Indiana a school for male delinquents run by Catholic priests. Manson soon fled home to his mother, but she took him back to the school. He spent ni- he spent Christmas 1947 in McMechan at his aunt's and uncle's house where he was caught stealing a gun. So you can see, folks, from very early on, Manson was getting into a lot of trouble. And he had, like, awful examples of parental units to look up to. And when well, then and then they take him to the Gilbot School for Boys. I mean, that was probably a horror show. I mean, that was probably a pretty horrible place to be, you know, run by Catholic priests, probably beating him with rulers and other kinds of shit. Yeah, he was uh, he was molested there, too, I believe. Yeah, Um, that's what I'm saying in terms of like, who knows what else? (laughs) I mean, molestation. That shit happened in the Catholic Church then, and probably still does to this day. So, uh, we don't want to get too much into his early life, because quite frankly, all people, you know, with with Manson, you know, I don't revere him as this interesting figure, and I don't really give a shit about his life, his early life. Well, apparently his uncle was a master criminal, like he he was a thief. He was a professional thief. So he took on uh, a bunch of boys as his apprentices, including Manson. So, yeah, you were you, you definitely did nail it when you said, like, he didn't really have the most reliable uh, family figures in his life. Uh, th- there were people who were either criminals or delinquents or just didn't give a shit. So, yeah, there wasn't anybody that could really keep him in line yeah when and then yeah here it's saying when he was sent to the indiana boys school a strict reform school he later claimed that other students raped him with the encouragement of a staff member uh mm. manson developed a self-defense technique he later called the insane game where he was physically unable to defend himself he would screech grimace and wave his arms to convince aggressors that he was insane after a number of failed attempts he escaped with two other boys in February uh, 1951, I guess. That was- lends some credence to the theory that some people feel that a lot of his ramblings and a lot of stuff that he does on tape that he's uh, been recorded doing is just uh, another version of that. 
yeah. just playing this insane game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he does do that in a lot of his interviews, like in later years when he's in jail, he'll he'll be asked a question and he'll just jump up out of the chair and start making all these dumbass faces and just wave flailing his arms around and doing all these kind of weird gestures with his body. And, you know, yeah, it, yeah I mean, it looks like a, a kid. It looks like a kid on a playground who was smaller than everyone else and had to develop some kind of way to survive. It's like if it's like it's like if somebody if Chunk decided to do the truffle shuffle all the time when, when like he's he feels like he's being threatened he just like just just starts doing the truffle shuffle like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah it, it's just it's it's just absurdity i mean but, I, a lot of i feel like a lot of his early life and later life too it was just survival just surviving well, exactly so circumstances that's, yeah so the insane game to him was survival. That was a way for him to avoid being beaten or, or raped or any of these other things. So to flash uh, forward through a lot of this kind of, um, you know, a lot of his, his childhood, which again, I'm not going to talk about this guy like he should be revered. I'm just going to talk about the historical points of interest that he's most known for. Because like I said, I think he's a piece of shit individual i think he's insane uh-huh. i don't i don't he he just babbles on like some crazy street urchin um so i really don't care about you know enough about him as a person he eventually ended up in prison for a majority of his uh adulthood especially his young adulthood in fact all of his young adulthood was spent in prisons so for the most part his home for many years of his life was prison. Yeah. And uh he was eventually released from uh Terminal Island, which I find uh, a pretty uh crazy name for a prison, Terminal Island. <laughs> Sounds like a really shitty direct to video action movie to me. Terminal Island starring Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> Rowdy Roddy Piper. And Don the Dragon Wilson. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to happen i think they actually it were in a movie but it wasn't called terminal island oh god wrestlers aside from like the rock should not be act well i don't know they're kind well, of roddy piper was good and they live i mean roddy piper i had fun with him and they live i liked him in uh hell comes to frog town so jesus how many movies was rowdy roddy piper in He's been in a lot. God, actually. I had no idea. That would be an interesting YouTube video. Like the, the he was in Back in Action with uh, Billy Blanks. He was also in another film with Billy Blanks called Tough and Deadly. The Ty Bo guy was an actor. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Before he did Ty Bo, he was doing uh, direct to video action movies. I thought he was just some black dude who could like kick a lot of ass. I didn't know he was like this like action star. Anyway, I digress on all that. Um, so basically, once Manson was discharged from prison, he be- it was on uh, March 21st, 1967 uh, from Terminal Island. He had spent most of it, more than half of it, his 32 years in prisons and other institutions. Actually, he said uh, to authorities uh, before he was released that he actually requested permission to stay. Which is kind of ironic because that's really what should have happened. Yeah. 
Um, not really ironic, but um, definitely something that I, I think is rather telling because that just shows you that he was not meant to be released into society. He should have just stayed in prison. And if he did, then none of this fucked up shit would have ever happened with his family. Yeah. So once discharged from prison, Manson began attracting a group of followers, mostly young women from around California. They were later dubbed the Manson family. The group uh, was involved in the murder of Gary Hinman in July 1969, then gained national notoriety after the murder of actress Sharon Tate and four others in her home on August 9th. And Lino and Rosemary La Bianca the next day. Now, this is where I'm going to break off from the Wikipedia and tell you kind of the stuff that I learned about him and from these other various documentaries. So now I'm going to like break off from the Wikipedia page and tell you, you just go over the documentaries that, that we watched about Manson. The first one was a documentary that came out in the 70s called Just Manson. It was, it was uh, released in 1973, directed by Robert Hendrickson and Lawrence Merrick, and it was actually nominated for an Oscar. Um, apparently, according to Josh, it shouldn't have been nominated for an Oscar, let alone anything. Okay, yeah, so so, so I watched <laughs> the documentary. Mike didn't. Mike, Mike just, because when Mike, Mike's a movie guy, so I always ask him, you know, hey, is there any, like, you know, is there any genre-defining documentary about you know whatever cult we're about to talk about because i figure mike would know if anyone and so then he told me about this documentary manson he said oh, i haven't watched it but it's gotten all these awards and this that and the other now the thing about the first documentary is it was literally made just a few years after the case which according to mike that's why a lot of people liked it was because it was so it happens so recently after the murders so it was like you know, this this recent take. And I mean, they were interviewing people from the Manson family and they were all still young as hell that some of them looked like little kids, you know, some of them looked like very young teenagers. And uh, a lot of people were also being like, OK, it had Squeaky from who would then later on go on to uh, try to assassinate. Uh, I, I think the president or one of yeah, the other Gerald uh, Ford, I believe. Yeah, Gerald Ford. So. That's a big reason why a lot of people were praising it, and and of course the 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 uh, exclusive interviews with the Manson family. Yeah, and I will say that um, you definitely do get a sense of how insane these people became, um, and how brainwashed they became after living with Charles Manson. But moreover, just after doing so many drugs. Um, because so there was so much LSD and acid, and I guess those are the same things, but whatever. Uh, so many just, uh, something called Belladonna, never heard of that drug before. Uh, I feel like it was like a hippie. I think it's actually a herb or something, an herb or something like that. Yeah, I feel like it was more of a 60s hippie drug, but, uh, apparently it just makes you go insane. I yep. mean, Manson, uh, he exercised all your typical uh, cult leader traits, um, which, if it, you know... He was charismatic. He uh, acted like he was uh, a, a god. So then a lot of people uh, ended up uh, being attracted to that because people who didn't have direction in their life or didn't have a family, he was offering that to them. There was a lot of orphans that joined his family and uh 
But there were some women who eventually, once they realized how fucked up Manson was, they left. Yeah, I'll get I'll get they to were that. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, just to remind everybody, the 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 six factors that that you know <laughs> that you're in a cult, beware of any kind of pressure. That's the single most important advice. Any kind of pressure to make a quick decision about becoming involved in any intensive kind of activity organization. Now, Manson was everything started out fine at first on on the Spawn Ranch where they where the Manson family convened and uh, not to... It was actually a Spawn Movie Ranch. Spawn Movie Ranch. They used to shoot... Because it was actually a, a set for Westerns. Yeah. Back in the day. And this old, 80-year-old blind man owned the ranch. And Manson, with the help of these these ladies of his, these young, attractive women... Um, of course, the blind man didn't see whether they were attractive or not, but he just liked that there were women around all the time. And these women would help him... In his various, you know, affairs, uh, you know, trying to just, you know, go throughout his day and shit. So he was, he let them stay on on this ranch, un, unbeknownst to him, all the kind of stuff they were doing and what was going on. They they kept that from the old man. But anyway, going back to these, you know, what makes up a cult. Um, when Manson started getting into the whole helter skelter thing, that's where the whole making quick decisions of intense kind of activity started going on. The second thing is be wary of a leader who proclaims him or herself as having special powers and insight, and of course, divinity. That was a number one Charles Manson all the way. He said he was God and the devil. So I mean, I think those are the two, at least in Christian mythology, the two biggest. Um, you know, characters. Well, even some of his followers, like, they, they looked at him like the closest thing to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because he was opening himself to them. He was being uh, open and kind and, and, and all of that and willing to sacrifice all these different things and so on and so forth. So they looked at that as a very uh, Christ-like uh, series of traits. And, um... That's the, that's the thing. I mean, he was talking about these things that were nice. And, and these were people that didn't have freedom. And, and they, they had now have freedom to have orgies and smoke pot and do other drugs and shit. And Well, it's not that they didn't have freedom. It's the fact that these were all basically transients that were in California. Because their parents well, and their family rejected them. And, and Manson took them in. And had the charisma well, to build up their self-esteem and their sense of self-worth. I'm quoting what they were saying. Like, they were actually saying things like, I can be free. Well, yeah. That's once, what I'm quoting. Once they, I guess the, I just uh, I just took issue with the whole they didn't have freedom. It's like, it's not that they didn't have freedom before, you know, they just were I directionless. I was, I was adopting their particular belief well, in that moment, anyway, well, which was we we didn't have freedom, like true freedom. Now we're free. Okay. Now that we're a part of of this family, in in at this ranch. Number three, the group is closed. So in other words, there may be outside followers, but there's usually an inner circle that follows the leader without question and maintains a tremendous tremendous amount of secrecy. Now this one, not so much. I mean, there definitely was the 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 family, quote unquote, was the inner circle. Um. And then you did have kind of some fringe members on the outside who, you know, 
when things got a little intense, you know, they they kind of dropped out and they're like, okay, this this isn't for me. This is kind of crazy. So yeah, there was an inner, but this the whole secrecy thing. I don't know. They they weren't. Um, well, I guess their plans to like kill a bunch of people in the Hollywood Hills was pretty secret. Yeah, I would say they were pretty secret yeah, okay. because of the whole uh, killing plan and the helter skelter stuff, and and they were pretty secluded and isolated. Because they were in this uh, just abandoned movie set in the, in, uh, the middle of California somewhere in, in the hills. Number four, the group uses deceptive means typically to recruit new members and then once recruited will subject its members to an organized program of thought reform or what most people refer to as brainwashing. Absolutely, that's yes. what happened with this. Even though Manson himself denies that actually happened. Like, there's interviews where he's, like, trying to say, like, that's not how it was. I didn't tell them to do anything. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Whatever they wanted to do, they they were allowed to do it. And uh, then you actually had two of the women who were involved in the murders who were at the trial. And they're like, no, like, that's a lie. Manson is is, is lying. Like, I, 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 we take responsibility for what we did. Why can't he type deal type of deal um and apparently the newer documentary was just called manson like the last uh last days or something and that's narrated by rob zombie it's trying to throw out the this alternate theory that maybe manson isn't totally crazy about his concept his idea that maybe he wasn't the only one that was involved in these killings or something i don't know about that but yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, to go back to the whole, like, using deceptive means to recruit new members, uh, sex, he used women. He used the young women yep. that were in his group to basically go and, and, and fuck their way to Manson's goals. Whatever he wanted, he just threw attractive women at people, and it it got him pretty far. It got... Yep. That's how... Dennis yep. Wilson, the drummer from the Beach Boys, got involved in this whole thing. He ended up screwing two girls that ended up being like high-ranking Manson family people. Um, so yeah, but that's that again. That that's an offshoot that I'm going to do for the uh, Patreon there. But uh, number five, typically cults also exploit their members mostly financially. Within the group, they'll exploit members financially psychologically emotionally and all too often sexually check 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 uh i mean a lot of these people didn't have any money but for instance when him and uh dennis linked up the uh beach boy uh he drained dennis dry of uh a lot of his money so when somebody did have a a resource to exploit manson would exploit it under the guise of this hippie philosophy of man everything is everybody's man and we share everything man like it's it's all a communal thing man um and then yes the sexual part for sure emotional part for sure manson had to fuck every single person in the group um and then the last point is uh a cult is uh is the idea that if you leave the cult horrible things will happen to you um this was kind of true for this call, although I think it seems like horrible things are only threatened to happen to uh, to ex cult members during the trial. Yes, during the trial for sure. Um, I think I think this was one of the cults that you could pretty easily leave, but 
again, if you were the kind of person that ended up there in the first place, if you left the cult, you still had that thing in you, that longing that wasn't being filled. So I think most of the people who joined, uh, they, they stayed, but they may not have gone to the extremes of some of the cult members who ended up in this court case that we're going to get to. So during this Manson documentary that I was watching that was in the 70s, it, it the film opens up with this woman who is basically saying, you kill whoever gets in your way. You kill them and you move on. If there is a child, you move them to the desert. I mean, she's just as fucking disjointed as Charles Manson is in her trains of thought. You're talking about killing people. Now you're saying there's a child and you move them to a desert. Okay. Those two things are not alike. Um, and then it opens up by showing basically the whole cast of culty characters. Uh, and then it's basically saying what their, what their sentence was. So starts off by showing pictures of Manson. It says death row, Susan Atkins, death row, Patricia Krenwinkel, death row, Leslie Van Houten, death row, Tex Watson, death row, Robert Bo Bosalil, death row, Linda Kasabian, turn state's evidence, Steve Grogan, life imprisonment, Bruce Davis, life imprisonment, Mary Bruner, accused murderess, and um, I, I thought it was funny that they they used like the uh, gender um, you know way of. I, you're either a murderer or a murderess. I thought that was kind of a 70s thing. Yeah, now, you, you don't really hear that term very no, often No, that that's an antiquated term. Now someone's just a murderer. It doesn't matter what gender they are. Or someone would just, they'd be offended about it. You know, they'd be like, why is it a murderess? Why is it just a murderer? I was listening to the There's Clark. There's no terms for, special terms for male murderers. Why, does, why do female murderers have to have special terms? Yeah, I was listening to the Clark Howard show one time and he's like this consumer guy and he's, you know, he's just, he has nothing to do with anything like drama or, you know, you know, any of the kind of political climate and political correctness or anything like that. And he was simply talking about uh, the uh, executing someone's will and you have the executor and the executor, the executrix and the executrix uh -huh. refers to a woman executor. And someone actually called in and, and complained about that. It's like, that's uh, an antiquated <laughs> term. Why not just call everyone executors? Why do you have to have a female variance and all that? I'm just like, God damn it. We are not safe in any. It's like the whole actor and actress. Like there are people who think women should just be actors. And I get it. I understand that. But the actress term's been around for a long time. I don't see why that is really that sexist or that much of an issue, but that's just me personally. Yeah, I don't really see um, the big deal. I mean, I don't know. I, I like, dude, <laughs> I don't want to get into a whole thing helps. about it. But. I mean, well, I mean, it's it's created, it was created specifically for things like the Oscars. Like, they can't just be like, best actor and everybody, you know, that, that would make it a little more difficult to hand out awards, right? And then you have another problem, like, what if a guy keeps winning Best Actor and the women that are nominated don't win? You know, then they'd be accused of being sexist there. So if you have Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, then women are always going to have, are always going to win an Oscar every year. Yeah, I don't know. Shit's getting ridiculous. But anyway, um, so the people I just named off are all 
it was Manson and all his kind of closest cronies. You know, a lot of these were women who were very dedicated to him, but you also had a few guys in there who were also committed to the cause as well. And um, then you got Vincent Bugliosi, who was the uh, deputy district attorney. And he's kind of narrating this documentary, but he's like actually in front of the camera in the courtroom. You know, the court. He wrote a book too that was a bestseller. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And the courtroom's empty, of course, and he's just kind of talking about everything. And, you know, this guy was selected amongst hundreds of attorneys to prosecute this case. And apparently, even Manson was impressed by him. He called him a judicial genius. Um, this was one of the longest murder trials in American history at nine and a half months. Well, I think it was about 10 months. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a few facts about the Manson family from just watching this first movie was, um, just crazy stories. Like, um, so there was this guy at one point, I guess who was in the family who wanted to kill himself. And one of Manson's girlfriends or whatever thought it would be groovy to bone him and right when she was climaxing he would blow his brains out and yeah and so that's what what they did like she was screwing him and then i guess right when he was about to come he like blew his brains out and apparently they both came you know because when you die you climax apparently and blah 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 and um and, and then like you know it, this was a, someone else recounting this story on the documentary, but then they're talking about. I mean, that gives that gives a whole new meaning to the to the song. I just died in your arms tonight. Yeah, I mean, really. Um, but then then she starts talking about uh, how she would like she started drinking the blood that was that came out of his mouth, Fuck. and she thought it was groovy. Uh, you hear the term groovy so fucking much in that documentary that that I I literally wanted to go slap a baby boomer after watching this, like. <laughs> Good lord, the amount of times the word groovy. It's like, and far out and shit. I would have expected to like see Bruce Campbell from Evil Dead show up and just be like, groovy. Because <laughs> you, know? uh, you just hear groovy so much. I'm like, why not? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and it was just, just the amount of drugs that were done, like I said, to just to kind of, it was all part of the brain control process. And um, actually at one point, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, she was talking about how when she was younger, she was like, you know, everybody in the family, you know, it was it was like in there was a state of chaos, but Charles always knew he was always in control. And then she's like, the more I think about it, the more I never actually, I don't think I actually ever saw him drop acid. So it's almost like, was he getting everyone else really fucked up and in a, in a state of insanity and he himself did not you know, but there's uh, so many other people in the documentary who was saying that, you know, he did he did it as well and blah, blah, blah. And um, but yeah, I mean, they they talk, they were talking about shit like some of these family members. They, they were saying how they want to freak people out and how they want to gouge their eyes out and mush them against a wall. And they want to do that to Elizabeth Taylor because her true beauty would only be revealed after her face was all smashed up. Fuck, I can actually see why people were like, yeah, this is a good documentary because it just shows how crazy the, the family was. Probably the most disgusting thing, and I almost don't even want to say it because it's like very explicit, 
So you can go ahead and fast forward like 20 seconds past this part for what I'm about to say. But the most disgusting thing that one of the family members said was that they wanted to um, go to a house and kill a mother and her son and cut the child's penis off and put it in the dead mother's mouth. Oof. And that was just, I still have a visual of that to this day. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong? Like, you people are truly like satanic. Like, you were. Well, I mean, yeah, I think some of it definitely is not just strictly Manson's control, like uh, Bugadosi said in, in the biography documentary. Uh, some of these people were just had that type of anger or that type of. Uh, a mental uh, fortitude in them to do things like that. Yeah, they they or they already about they already things. had this this like angst against society like hardwired into them, and Manson was kind of like a catalyst that opened that up. Yeah, that might not have, you know, very well happened. It had that, you know, but I mean, you know, that's like the extreme version. But when things first started out on the ranch with the Manson family, it was this like peace and love, and a lot of them just thought it was perfect they thought it was paradise and it was this amazing thing and you know there was love and this that and the other and and things really started to change when Manson started seeing the Watts riots on television um now the Watts riots were when basically all the black population in parts of Los Angeles were getting tired of the LAPD pushing them around and beating their asses for pretty much no reason or overreacting at least to, you know, if there was a crime perpetrated by a black man, overreacting and beating them up and killing them needlessly and all that. So, you know, black people got fed up and they, you know, started to riot. Well, this scared Manson because black people, when he was in jail, black people were telling him that this was going to happen before it happened. So yeah. when these Watts riots started breaking out, that's when Charles Manson developed his whole helter-skelter philosophy. So helter-skelter is basically a philosophy by Charles Manson that black people, because of karma, they are going to take over. They're going to take over the country, the world, whatever. But because an apocalyptic uh, viewpoint, yeah. But by but because black people have no experience as having positions of power, they are inevitably going to fuck it up and and seek out the white people that survived Helter Skelter and be like, "Please take the power back. We don't know what we're doing." And then the whites who survive Helter Skelter will then control the world, uh, ostensibly the survivors only being the Manson family. Now, this is all his words, not mine. Because uh, it's, I yeah, feel, it's, it clearly totally I feel like it's makes bullshit. sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't sound yeah, completely, crazy at all. Completely makes sense. So. <laughs> so the, the, the A&E documentary. So, no, it's fucking batshit insane. That's what it is. Yeah. The documentary, I, I kind of wrote out some stuff here. I'm going to read through it, and then we can add our thoughts. Uh, so it opens up, and it's this woman going, This crazy bitch just told me that she killed Sharon Tate. In the fall of 1969, two months after the Tate-LaBianca murders, Virginia Graham was arrested for writing bad checks. One of her fellow inmates was a 21-year-old named Susan Atkins. She asked Virginia about the murders of Sharon Tate. 
And she asked, well, you know who committed those murders, don't you? And I was like, no. And she goes, you're looking at her. And then she described the murders in great detail and how Sharon was begging for her life. And I just want to have my baby because Sharon Tate was pregnant, eight months pregnant when she got murdered. And she was saying, please don't kill me. I just want to have my baby. And then Susan uh, Atkins was quoted as saying, I looked at her straight in the eye and said, bitch, I'm going to kill you. And she did. Susan Atkins said she committed the murders with three other people. They were part of a hippie commune led by one charismatic man. She kept calling him this cat. You know, not pussycat, but this cat. And then finally, one day, she did tell me his name. She said, Manson. She said, dig on this, man's son. And at that point, that's when all the resources of the police focused on the Manson family. So by Susan basically running her yap to the her cellmate, Virginia Graham, uh, that, that's when all the focus got turned on to the Manson family. Because what was supposed to happen with those murders is Manson's whole plan was they were going to kill these people and they were going to somehow frame black people for doing it, like the murders being the fault of blacks. And it was going to make the white people turn against the black people. And it was going to incite a race war. So Helter Skelter kind of got fucked up when Suzanne Atkins ran her mouth. Um, they say the 60s died on August 9th, 1969. That's when those murders took place. So, And that's a really uh, true and uh, tragic statement. But yeah, it definitely is true. Uh Kind of, Bill Curtis. Kind of a uh, kind of a silly statement too, because it's like, yeah, in a few months the '60s would have been dead anyway. Yeah, I know, but I guess the I, what I didn't think was that silly. But for me, this is how I interpreted it: the hippie ideal, idealized vision that was the '60s that died on that date, because now the hippies were associated with this horrible crime before it was just oh free love and and peace and so on and grateful dead and so on and so forth and now the hippie culture that permeated throughout the 60s was now tainted almost uh irrevocably by by the manson uh association and by and by the sharon tate murders and so on and so forth so I actually thought the quote was actually quite good. Overall, the biography documentary was, I thought, pretty solid. Um, they usually do a good job production uh, quality-wise. Bill Curtis, I had no idea he was covering that case. I know, it was crazy. I was like, man, a young Bill Curtis, like, he has such an iconic voice, too, you know? And he sounded the yes. exact same, like, way back when, like, as a young a young guy. That's that's a big reason why this documentary is uh, I thought was quite good because you have Bill Curtis and he actually goes back to the courthouse uh, all these years later and it's been abandoned and it's uh essentially not been condemned but it's it's almost there type thing. Uh, so that was that made it a quite an interesting sort of uh, look back because uh, it, it you know he goes back in there to the courthouse and. It's it's no longer what it once was, but there's still elements of its history. 
Well, yeah, and, like uh, most of the stuff in the building was stripped out, except when you get yeah. into the courtroom part, like all the molding on the on the ceiling and on the walls like that, that wooden, you know, that 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 rich, you know, courtroom wood yeah. shit that's like all over the uh that uh-huh. area that's all still there and Manson's But I mean having Bill Curtis just immediately elevates the documentary to a whole other level whole entirely higher level to me. Yeah. Because sure. he's just such he his his narration and his presence just screams quality. Yeah. So these murders were meant to incite a race war. Well, then Susan Atkins spills the beans, and then they start going after all the other people who might have been involved in this, and pretty soon they they get all the people who were involved. Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, Tex Watson, um, and... Vincent Brugliosi, one of the fucking stupidest last names, is hard, so hard for me to say for some reason. Isn't it? There's no R, I think. I think it's like Brugliosi or something, right? I, I, I don't know. I'm calling him Brugliosi, goddammit. Whether, <laughs> whether that's correct or not, people will at least have a point of reference just, as to what I'm talking about. Josh is just like, I don't give a shit. Like, I, I don't care. <laughs> this is all I've done today is just consume myself with this shit and I still don't feel like I have like a grip on it solidly. I mean, I do, but anyway, I'm going to get, we're going to get through this together, folks. (laughs) So they start off this case and at first they didn't have like, they didn't have a great way to tie everything to Manson because he didn't, he didn't physically kill anybody. But what Vincent Brugliosi did have was Linda Kasabian. She was cut out of a different cloth than the rest of her defendants. She was horrified by what she saw. And as soon as she had the first opportunity, she fled the family. And she knew from that night she was going to have to be the one to tell the world what happened. Her testimony was very powerful. She was the proverbial star witness. She literally captured the imagination of the nation telling the horrendous events in detail. Linda Kasabian's testimony certainly helped build the case against Manson's co-defendants, but their fate was sealed when forensic evidence, including fingerprints of Patricia Krenwinkel, has a stupidest, another stupid last name, Krenwinkel and Tex Watson were found at the crime scene, so they found their fingerprints there too. But Manson himself was a different story. Brugliosi had to get creative. The problem was Manton himself did not physically participate in these murders. He was not present at the time of the murders. He had to be brought in indirectly through circumstantial evidence. And the two main pieces of evidence used to connect Manson to the murder were motive and domination. With the testimony of ex-family members like Linda Kasabian, Brugliosi had no trouble showing that the jury, showing to the jury that Manson had ran the family like a dictatorship. And therefore, he must have been behind the murders. Why? Because he controlled their daily activity. But that still left puzzling question of motive. Why would would Charlie order his minions to kill? Brugliosi found the answer etched into a Beatles album. He proved to the jury Manson's connection through the song Helter Skelter. 
Helter Skelter was a Beatles song, but to Manson, Helter Skelter meant the last final destructive war on this earth. Manson played the album over and over again, and he was convinced that the Beatles were speaking to him and telling it like it is. In 1969, Manson told his family they would survive Helter Skelter if they moved to Death Valley and hid out in this cave that he called the Bottomless Pit. Manson said that the black man was going to win this war because it was their karma. They had been stepped on throughout history. But Manson was a racist. Manson said that they'll never know how to hold the reins of power because Manson said, quote, Blackie only knows what Whitey has told him to do, end quote. So he said the black man would have to turn over power to those white people who had survived Helter Skelter and will come out of the bottomless pit, pat Blackie on his kinky hair and send him on his way to picking cotton and will take over the leadership of the world. Manson believed by committing these murders in L.A., and blame it on black people that it, was called, it would cause whites to turn against the blacks and incite Helter Skelter. Now that's of course quoting Manson on the whole kinky hair and picking cotton. I would, <laughs> I would never say anything like that. Nor do I think that that was right in any way, shape, or form. This guy's clearly a fuckhead. Uh, clearly the opposite of Jim Jones in that area. Well, with Manson, um, I, I find it... Uh pretty intriguing that he was uh all, he was he, it was that album that really was what sparked his uh manic mind was uh, was the beatles of all things like the beatles are some of the you know most for what a lot of people think of like the safest and most nondescript and and uh one of the bands you could take home to your mother type thing you know there's, a, there's not really very tame and so he is associate. He, I guess, had this theory that popped in his head about Helder Skelter based on a Be- the Beatles song. Well, if you look at the context um, of history, though, at that at that time, the Beatles were in their psychedelic drug doing phase, yeah. and you know yeah. th- what? W- it's 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 a shame that that song is associated so much with Manson because after listening to it, I'm like, that's a pretty good song. Oh, the White Think Album about for the Beatles. The White Album was a very and, successful album in general. Yeah, I mean, for the Beatles in that time period, that that, that was a pretty rocking song. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the guitars and and a harder edge to it and things like that. Uh, also, what stood out to me about Manson, not just his, uh, I guess, obsession with the Helter Skelter by the Beatles, but was, was the fact that he was honestly a pretty decent musician himself. Oh, I heavily like, disagree with you there, Mike. I said decent. I wouldn't even go that. I didn't I say. I didn't say. I didn't say great. I didn't say good. I said decent, which is okay. I think you can say he's okay. Yeah, he's okay um, for like a street level guy. I I go in depth. I'll go in depth about that. I on, understand on that. The, but from um, what I heard, it's okay, Mike. I we thought, can have you know, we can have decent, differing opinions on this. We don't have to agree yeah, in the exact yeah, same exactly. thing. Yeah, exactly. He had he had a decent. He could carry a tune. Okay, and and I've heard some people on the street that can't carry a tune so i i think he could carry a tune better than you know a guy in the street but that's just my personal opinion i'd say probably his lyrics would be the most i don't know uh anything of significance that he did musically would be his lyrics because you get uh 
you know, this, but then again, they were kind of these like hippie platitudes to a certain extent too. Yeah, like, it was almost like the type of lyrics you'd hear from a guy at a college campus with a guitar. Let yourself go, you know? man. Be one with the nothing and everything with the something and yeah. the fucking hole and the, the everything. We are <laughs> this in the universe, all that kind of crap that unfortunately still carries on to this day with a lot of these hippie type, these modern hippies that I come in contact with from and time apparently time. crispin glover covered a, a a song that manson did a lot of people have been for some so, fucked up reason a lot of people cover manson songs i mean crispin Crisp, crispin glover is a weirdo himself so you know that that makes sense that some weirdo would cover another weirdo song but guns and roses also covered a song. yeah at the, it was a track 13 off the spaghetti incident album they covered um one of his look at your game girl yeah so finally on the evening of august 8th he told his family now is the time for helter skelter according to linda kasabian manson approached her tex watson patricia krenwinkle and susan atkins he handed them black clothing and they piled into the back of an old sedan the killers snaked their way through the boulevards and canyons en route to celio drive None of the killers knew Sharon Tate or any of the other victims, but they were about to become the first sacrifices at the altar of Helter Skelter. It could have been anybody. They had nothing against Sharon Tate or anyone at the Tate house. They were just terribly, terribly unlucky. The first person they confronted, which, good luck pronouncing this guy's name, Wachet Frakowski. He looked at, at Tex and he said, who are you and why are you here? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. So they gathered them all together, and the stabbing began. There were. I'm surprised he didn't say the devil's dirty work. You know, I mean, I hear the devil's business. There were 102 stab wounds among. Fuck. Yeah. So this. Overkill is an understatement. Well, it was groovy, man. And that was something in the first documentary they kept saying. It was, it was groovy. It was, you know, seeing someone's head. You know, when you lob their head off and seeing it roll down the hill, man, it's just groovy seeing that, man. It's just also groovy. It's wavy, man. So, it's not groovy at all. <laughs> the first person, uh, or, oh, sorry. So the second night, they drove through the city of L.A. looking for their victims completely at random. If they were Caucasian and appeared to be people of easy circumstances, they qualified to be murdered. So in the vast metropolis of L.A. that night, no one was safe. The killers pulled up to 3301 Waverly Drive and slaughtered the two people inside, Lennel and Rosemary LaBianca. As Manson ordered, they left a sign, and it was these words that led the jury back to Charles Manson. This was his philosophy. It was he who introduced it to the family, spoke about it all the time, and when the words helter-skelter were scrawled on the refrigerator... Brugliosi said this was tantamount to having Manson's fingerprints at the scene of the crime. And that shows Manson's crazy-ass followers outside of the courtroom. It's like this archival footage. And they all have X's carved into their forehead. Um, and they're just being crazy in general. They're like crawling on their hands and knees out in front of the, the courtroom and all that. Manson's apostles were a fascinating sideshow, but the real drama was on the eighth floor in the courtroom of Judge Charles Older. In many ways, the courtroom was Manson's stage. He relished the attention and seized every opportunity to stick his finger in the eye of justice. And so now it's showing an old uh, news footage reel. 
and it's uh, the uh, guy's reporting. He goes, the trial stopped dead in its tracks as Charles Manson almost casually held up a preview edition of the Los Angeles Times to the jury. The huge one and a half inch type read, Manson guilty, Nixon declares. One juror gasped. They were rushed out of the room as the court stood shocked. Now, how did Manson get a copy of the Los Angeles Times before it came out? I don't know, and they don't explain that. I wish they did. But Manson's stunt was meant to contaminate the jury who had been sequestered in a hotel, forbidden to read any news reports on the trial. Then Judge Older began a painstaking review of each juror. Judge Older called a recess, and Manson's attorney, Irving Kanarik, motioned for a mistrial. The judge didn't really know whether or not it would be a mistrial, and everyone was trying to avoid that, so he decided to question each of the jurors separately. As Judge Older questioned the individual jurors to see if they had been prejudiced by the news headline, Charles Manson grinned broadly at the court. Charlie was sitting there pulling the strings, manipulating the courtroom. He was satisfied that he had won. Ultimately, Judge Older decided the trial would proceed, but Charlie Manson was just warming up. As the jury filed into the courtroom, the three female defendants stood up together and in a sing-song-like unison chanted, If the president thinks we're guilty, why go on with a trial? See, what I loved about this particular uh, example of this uh, trial is that the judge did not allow this tomfoolery and this these shenanigans to to distract him or upset him to the point where he was like retrial because there were probably a lot of other judges who'd be like i don't have the time to deal with this shit this has gone on long enough i don't want to deal with it retrial but thankfully he didn't do that because it would just if they had done a retrial it would have just prolonged everything they probably would have had to have gotten a different jury well they would have definitely gotten a different jury um, it might have been moved to a different out of state or, or out of the, the city or whatever. It just it would have just um, could have given Manson more of an opportunity to, you know, pull his bullshit. So at Manson's command, the family even tried to silence the witness. Family member Barbara Hoyt lived at Barker Ranch in Death Valley in the fall of 1969 during that period of time before the arrest, Barbara overheard Susan Atkins boasting to a number, an, another family member of killing Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas. Quote, she was very excited. You'd think she was describing a party. She enjoyed what she did. She, she really enjoyed it. Suzanne's confession spurred Barbara to run away from the Death Valley compound. She called police and she wanted to testify for the prosecution. A short time later, the threats began. Quote, they threatened my family. They threatened me. They insinuated other witnesses have been killed or will be killed. Family member Ruth Morehouse approached Barbara and tried to get her to reconsider testifying. Now, this, this is a fucked up thing right here. She fed Barbara a hamburger of lettuce, tomatoes, and 10 doses of LSD. Quoting Barbara, I started... That's a lot of LSD. Yeah. Coming from Mike, who's done his fair share, he knows <laughs> he knows how much that, that can be. Been doing too much LDS, yeah. I, yeah, I think that does more than just give you dislas. Dis I'm on it right now, too, so I can't really say anything. 
So anyway, Barbara's quoted as saying, I started getting higher and higher and I didn't know what was wrong with me. That would be such a scary feeling, dude, to just like, yes. you don't know that you've been poisoned with something. You just think you're literally losing your fucking mind. Bar- that would be awful because you don't, you're just thinking like, what the hell was in that burger? You'd, yeah, you'd or something. Like, you probably wouldn't even, well, you probably wouldn't even think that. You'd just be like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah, because what the fuck is happening? What is happening to me? Ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, if you got a stomach ache, you blame the burger. If you got diarrhea, you blame the burger. If you start losing your brain, you're not going to be like, oh, it was the hamburger. So Barbara had never taken LSD before. She became hysterical and started running through the streets. She went unconscious and was rushed to the hospital. That's like the uh, clandestine experiments this, the CIA did with uh, LSD. Yeah. He, uh, he had something to do with that. <laughs> Folks, you don't come to this podcast for the professionalism. God damn it. Yawning? Just, okay. No, I was, I was like, this is boring. No, I was, uh, I was stretching because I just, I, I just uh, thought it was funny because like, I know Timothy Leary had something involvement with the LSD stuff in the 60s, but I don't remember exactly what it is. Well, there was a guy who actually killed himself. Yeah, well, yeah, the guy on Unsolved Mysteries. That was a fucking great case. That was a very underrated Unsolved Mysteries case. So... Barbara, anyway, yeah, so she thought, uh, I thought I had died, but then I came back to life again. For two weeks after the incident, she debated whether to testify, and quoting her, she goes, and finally, what it came down to, I had to decide if I could live with myself when I got old. I decided the answer was yes, so I knew what I had to do, and she turned out to be a great witness for the prosecution. It was Monday, November 25th, 1970. Closing arguments were set to begin. There was just one key element missing. Ronald Hughes, the defense attorney for Leslie Von Houten. Immediately, everybody thought the family did it. Charlie manipulated the girls and they went out and killed Ronald Hughes. It was almost the only conclusion you could draw. The trial was in recess for a month. After the fact, Hughes was still a no-show. Judge Older had a big decision to make. Declare a mistrial and waste five months of work or press on. The judge decided to appoint a new lawyer for Leslie Van Houten. As soon as he did, Van Houten stood up and howled in protest. The court deputies tried to get Hunter in control, and she punched one of the officials in the face. And eventually, the court was cleared out. Finally, on January 15th, 19... 19- I mean, I love how he's just like, uh, let's go through that real quick. I mean, that, that, that never happens in a courtroom like that usually. Yeah. I mean, that's just... The, that just raises this whole trial to a whole nother level of crazy. You got LSD laden laced burgers. You got uh, uh, a attorney that goes missing. Then you have this it's all an attempt to try to stop this trial to just put it into uh, a retrial or just make it a total fucking shit show. And then when the girl, the woman realizes that that didn't work, she's just like, uh, fuck it. You know, maybe this will do it. You know, yeah, I'm just going to start howling and wailing and smack somebody and punch him in the face. And maybe in, a, in another trial with a different judge that might have done it. But this judge was like, nope, this is a battle between the justice system and Charles Manson and I am not going to let Manson win. Yeah, and 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 he did not. 
On January 15, 1971, the Manson trial went to the jury, finally. After seven months of trial, interrupted by constant disruption, the jury feels no compulsion to rush its verdict. After nine days, the jury rendered its verdict, guilty, straight down the line. Two months after the verdict, the decomposed body of Ronald Hughes washed up in a creek north of L.A. There were no obvious signs of foul play, and Ventura County determined Hughes had been caught in a flash flood while camping and drowned. All four defendants were headed to the gas chamber in San Quentin. This is where most stories end, but in Charles Manson's world, it had just begun. But was it really a flash flood? I know, it sounds crazy. Sounds crazy. I mean... Couldn't it easily be something where some of his followers found where he was camping and then killed him to make it look like he drowned in a flash flood or something? I mean, I don't know. It just sounds too... Convenient? Convenient or crazy, which is funny, you know, when we're talking about a crazy guy and his crazy followers, but I don't know. But maybe that's really what happened. It is. That's just a really crazy coincidence. Yeah. So... Manson, Patricia Krenwinkel, Charles Watson, Leslie Van Houten are all still, well, this is as of that documentary, I think in 2010, they were all still alive, serving life sentences in, in prison after a Supreme Court decision commuted their death sentences, because in California, the death sentence uh, was outlawed, so their death sentences obviously weren't going to happen. There was a... Uh it was an interview, I think, with Diane Sawyer. I think that's who it was, and with uh, Charles Manson, and then also with uh, the two other women. And the two other women, like they seemed really remorseful. Like they both seemed like, yeah, we we really regret what we have done. And uh, one of the other uh, women, she was like, really campaigning to be released, and it seemed like she honestly had learned. A, a, a very uh, hard lesson and would probably be fine in society but that uh, wasn't enough apparently uh, I, I know that Bugliosi felt that well it doesn't matter you know they may very well be re- rehabilitated but they should remain in prison for the rest of their lives and I'm like I don't know like how do you feel about it because with this with this particular situation it seems like they were heavily influenced by Manson. Would they have done this without his influence? I'd probably say no. So, for me, there are other instances where people have been released from prison because they they themselves didn't do it on their own recognizance. Like, they, they were led by somebody or they were forced to do something or so on or so on and so forth. So... Why are these women, why is their case different? Is it because it's the Manson case? I don't know. First degree murder is a hard one to uh, wiggle your way out of. It is. It definitely is. There's, you know, premeditation involved in that. So it's like, regardless of what the reason was, it's kind of like what Brugliosi said. He said, if the American justice system has any meaning or any warrant, then these people will spend the rest of their lives in, in prison. And I mean, these were particularly egregious crimes. Yeah, they were. I totally, I totally, I totally understand the decision, and I'm not necessarily a disagreement of it. I'm just saying, 
It's it is there, it is I hard think, though to look at an elderly woman who's crying yes. and being like, I I don't know what else. I don't know how else to pay for this except for me to die for the for yeah. what I've done. And I'm sure yeah. you would be very happy if that happened. That's what she told the parole people. You know, uh -huh. she's like, I don't know how else to pay for this. You know, and and seeing that and seeing her and 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 she's old now and the youth and the you know everything has faded and now she's just this old broken woman and it's almost like you know it's i i'm sorry but I, I i guess i'm using my my bias in this instance but yeah i think if it was some old man i'd be like you fucking murderer you stay in jail and rotten you know but i'm like looking at her, i'm like she's a fucking like sunday school teacher now look at her like, she's not a fucking cold-blooded killer. Well, I mean, I'd feel that way for an older man, too, if he really had re been rehabilitated. See, that's the thing for me. It's like, if somebody has fully rehabilitated themselves, is totally re totally cognizant and aware of the horrific crime and, and, and the, uh, and the uh, consequences of that, why can't they get released? Because there have been instances where we've seen Unsolved Mysteries where somebody gets convicted of whatever first degree or second degree murder, or it was blatantly obvious what they did was horrible, and they still got released. Yeah, second degree, you see a lot more releases, or you see a lot of, of those cringy, only seven years served type things, because that's more of a heat of the moment. There was no premeditation. Well, couldn't this technically be heat of the moment too? I know there is premeditation here, but it's not like. They knew Sharon Tate or any of these people personally. I would say there's absolutely no heat of the moment. This was 100% pure premeditation. Um, yeah. You know, I mean... But I, I just think Manson's influence on on these women and and everyone just makes it so much more complicated to me. So It really does. It doesn't make it as black and white as they did it. It's like, I, I think it was like his presence is the biggest reason why they did it. Without his presence, I don't think they do that at all. No, I don't so. think so either. But it's like Brugliosi said, you also have to have that in you somewhere, yeah. you know, to, to be able to do that, you know. But then again, I don't know about his particular uh, mindset. I mean, yes, I think there are some instances of people where that is the case. But I think there are other cases where there are people that don't really have that kind of thing in them. And it just gets brought out because they get so wrapped up into this cult. Well, I mean, look at the Nazis. I mean, how many Nazi soldiers, you know, before Hitler really like brainwashed everyone would have never done any, would have never imagined, you know, doing any of that shit exactly. to people. And then it became yeah. this like mob mentality or this group think mentality where it's like no these jewish people are lesser people you know you they yeah. deserve or jonestown uh, yeah that's another yeah, example or jonestown yeah yeah so yeah i mean there's some there is some credence there to your point uh in 2008 susan atkins she was one of the one of the fab four that murdered all those you know the sharon tate and all them uh, Susan Atkins, well, she was the one who spilled the beans, actually. She announced that she had terminal brain cancer, and in September 2009, Atkins died at Central County Women's Facility. As for Manson, every few years he comes before the parole board. Manson's appearances are pure theater, a chance for him to play the role of evil incarnate. So they show a, a like a footage of him in the parole in front of the parole people, and you hear the guy off camera go. Do you have remorse, Mr. Manson, for the victims whatsoever? And then Manson goes, 
I ask you back the same thing. You've been using me ever since I was 10 years old. Used to beat me with leather straps. It's like, does anyone have any remorse that I've spent 23 years in a solitary cell? It's like, bitch, how are you about to make this about you in this situation? Of course. Of course he would. Of course he's going to make it about him. You know? Good Lord. That's how he he manipulates the situation. That's how he takes control. That's how he takes power over. And then he spills on into his typical Charles Manson psycho babble. He goes, each one of you is somebody. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm now because I'm because now I'm alive. My mother went to prison and left and everybody's lying to me. It's like, uh, that's like not what we were even talking about. But much. So. Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten are a different story. They accept responsibilities for the murders. Krenwinkel argues she's no longer a danger to society and should therefore be released. Quote, I don't expect the board to say I can go home. I'm paying for this the best I, as I can, and there's nothing more I can do outside of being dead to pay for this. And I know that's what you wish, but I can't take my own life. The family members who were unscathed by the murder were having tough times as well. Uh, particularly this one lady, uh, Catherine Parent, who is an ex-family member who was interviewed. And uh, she goes on to, um, Bill Curtis asks, when did you wake up and leave? And then she goes, when did I wake up? Maybe a decade later. Completely, I mean, I did a lot of time in prison. I became a criminal. I had, you know, I had went from bad to bad to worse. Catherine and her boyfriend robbed a store and got 10 to life. And she said, what saved me was knowing I was loved and knowing that I was worth something. And it took years for me to find out. And I'm still learning about it even now. So that is basically, shit, I would say the Cliff Note version, kind of what went on. Uh, like I said, man, there... Uh, there's, this is such, there's so many like various, uh, degrees to this story and, um, the whole beach boy thing, uh, is a pretty big deal because, um, the family was essentially staying at Dennis Wilson's house and when they got booted out, that's when they went to spawn ranch. Yep. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot that, uh, gets that, that plays into it with the whole Dennis Wilson thing, the drummer for, uh, the beach boys. And I, like I said, I'm going to do a whole solo thing on that on Patreon where I, I'll uh, explain how they lured him in and, you know, basically how they used him and how he got out and how uh, Manson even was able to finagle his way into getting a one of his songs on a Beach Boys album, but it was reworked. The lyrics were reworked um, and it was, you know they added their typical like beach boys harmonies to it and everything. And, uh, it's not a bad song, but the beach boys are a large reason as to why it's not a bad song. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, trying to think what, what, what did you think overall about all this, Mike? Well, I mean, I didn't know, like, I knew about the case in terms of oh Manson and the Manson family, but I didn't know the the gruesome details of some of the things. So like the just the the documentary with Bill Curtis showed the black and white photos of of the aftermath, and that was quite chilling. And and uh, just seeing like the just 
depravity and the just intensity of it all. Like I could see why this was this was the case that in in 1969, like just completely shattered people because they're just like, what human a man could possibly do something like this? Like I, I I would say this is like the Jack the Ripper uh uh of of that particular decade and and honestly a modern uh society in a lot of ways because this is like the first one that you know since Jack the Ripper that's like this huge notoriety but unlike Jack the Ripper you actually have people who were caught and Jack the Ripper we still don't know who who did it and whoever did it got away with it but with uh Manson no nobody got away with it they both got caught I mean all of them got caught and all of them got convicted but that still didn't completely uh erase the damage that was done uh a lot of people of course don't look at something like that ran that ranch was completely destroyed and torn down um I want I'm wondering if it was destroyed and torn down after the crimes like pretty soon afterwards, which because that would make a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, it's weird because usually those places are like they have historical significance, you know, for bad reasons. So they usually don't. Mm-hmm. They usually preserve that stuff, you know, like all the concentration camps have have been preserved. And, yeah, uh, according to well, then you have the courthouse, which was stripped. So that's another thing. Yeah, um, and the, the I, I found the image of there's like a wall in the courthouse that there's a spray paint. There's a spray painted uh, message on it. It says historic. You know, like it's it's one last attempt to be like, this is historic. What are you doing? You know, but it's like mm, we have a new courthouse in L.A. This one's outlived its usefulness. Um, But yeah, it's definitely one of the most infamous trials and murder cases in American history. Uh, and for for good reason. It's just horrific. And then you have the whole actress thing. You got an actress, Sharon Tate, who is the then wife of director Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski himself is kind of a monster, if you ask me. Yeah. But I can't help but feel a little sympathetic. I mean, definitely feel sympathetic for him because that's his wife and that's just horrible. You didn't, I mean, that's something you don't want anybody to ever experience or, or deal with. You know, that horror and that just that grief and that loss of just a sudden loss of, of your wife and also a, a, a kid because she was eight months pregnant. So I think that tied, that was another reason why the case was also so notorious and so memorable for a lot of people is because of the Hollywood connection. Uh, also it took place in, in uh, what was it? Uh, trying to think of exactly where, where Beverly Hills around that area or something like close, Right. It was in California. Yeah, it was in a really high end part of California. I, I don't think it was in Beverly Hills for sure, but I know it was in a very high end uh, part of, of uh, California, and it, it's not something that was considered to ever be uh, unsafe. And uh, there were a lot of people who were just terrified. And uh, when the murders were happened, and people yeah, it was in uh, Beverly Hills. You're right. Yeah, Benedict Canyon. Okay, so it was Beverly Hills. Hills. So it was in Beverly Hills, and that's not something you associate with crime and murder. You associate that with spoiled rich brats and the Kardashians and shit like that. So 
this was one moment when Beverly Hills was like, this was like horror. Like this is all, this was like a place of horror. And the sales for guns and other weapons went through the roof after these killings in, in LA because people are like, everybody didn't feel like they were safe. Oh, another thing, another felt- thing I'll touch on in the uh, Patreon bonus segment is the uh, creepy crawls that they would go on that we didn't really yeah. mention. Well, I mean, there there was uh, the documentary did mention that they were they dressed up in black, and then they got in the car and they drove around, and I guess they found Sharon Tate's house and they chose that one as the place where they're going to commit the first murder because we're trying to blame these murderers on the blacks so they could cause helter skelter, and then which I find interesting because it's like from what Manson was saying, it's like oh this is a prophecy. But it's like the only reason that this is going to happen, is, this race war, is because you are inciting it. So, what? <laughs> I guess he felt like it was something that was just eventually going to happen, and he, and he was just trying to quicken it or something. But yeah, the, yeah, something like, like that. The funny thing is, though, it's like, yeah, I don't know, like these these like fucking dirty hippies like running, running the world. You know, like how how. Yeah. It shows you like the the hubris of this guy to think that 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 was something the arrogance yeah that it's a sheer arrogance that he could actually like pull that off you know like this guy yeah. who do, who can't even hardly carry a tune you know is gonna is gonna rule the world not saying that people who can carry tunes are great world leaders or anything but uh well I would say the bigger thing is like this guy who's been in prison most of his life and doesn't know anything other than prison rules is going to end up carrying the world on his shoulders and, and, and rule it or whatever. I mean, come on, give me a break. Um, but the other, the other things like, uh, I, I remember that were of note was, uh, more descriptions of their drives around, uh, LA all dressed in black, getting ready to do more murders. And the fact that under their criteria, Pretty much almost everyone in L.A. was uh, a potential murder victim because it was like, oh, it's a white people that... Well, that see, that's, uh, that's what I thought was a weird quote when um, Brugliosi said that because yeah. not everyone in L.A. is a rich white person. In fact, there, well, yeah, there exactly. are a lot of people in L.A. Yeah. that are not rich or white. Well, so I don't- back then, though... That might have been a high number of people in L.A., especially in that area, Beverly Hills. Yeah, maybe. The high, no, no, largest number of, of people, percentage of people is going to be rich. That guy probably should have clarified his statement a little better because he made it seem like all of LA, all of Los Angeles, which you got like, well, you got like Compton, you, you know. Yeah, I know. You got all these places that are not predominantly rich white people, you know. But, yeah. Yeah. He's a little out of touch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, well, everybody in, in my neighborhood is rich and white, so. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's just a horrific crime. And it's just, it is still crazy to me how he was just able to entrance so many people. And, and unlike some of these other like cult leaders, it doesn't seem as charismatic to me as someone like Jim Jones or even like Apple White. He just seems crazy. He's got the same kind of like certainty in his gaze. He does, but it's just he just seems kind of silly to me, even more so than Applewhite. Because I mean, he's he's got that look in his eyes 
that gaze. But then, you know, he's like five foot two. You know, he's not a very intimidating or, or really, but I think that's probably part of it is because he was like five foot two. Like he wasn't, that's why a lot of people were attracted to him because of this. I, I guess they felt sympathetic in some ways or they looked at him as like, oh, how could you hurt anybody? Yeah, you it was know? deceptive. But that's why he's like a, that's why he's like a Christ-like figure is because he's this small guy who's just, you know, been kicked on and beat on all his life and is still here, you know, and he's preaching and he's trying to talk about the good in the world. And for all we know, he could just be faking that shit. Well, that was the one so thing the family said about money. him. They said they said he is the ultimate underdog. And that's yeah, exactly. Liked about, you know, one of the things they liked about him. Yeah. So, but I mean, I guess to me, it's just like he just seems a little bit too like out there. I mean, because uh, Jim Jones, yeah, he's like, I'm going to... Do you want me to fuck you in the ass, you know, and all that other stuff? But before his last days, yeah, he had his moments, but at the same time, he was preaching things like uh, unity and, and trying to unite the all races and so on and so forth. And and with Manson, I don't even know what he was preaching. Like, what was even his thing? Was it just like free love and you're free and you can do whatever you want? Like, I don't... Orgies are... are okay with me i i don't you know drugs it was just, just like a hippie babble that bullshit that like yeah. every every burned out riverside hippie that i've met here in jacksonville that i talked to i i ended up at some riverside party and there'd just be that the, those few resident you know hippie people who were like 20 years older than everyone else and it's like yeah yeah man what's what's going on brother yeah man yeah it's everything is everything man you know like I am one, and we are many, and and none at the same time, and you know the universe. Yeah, is, you know. And, I, and if you're if you're constantly high, which was probably a lot of these uh, members were, then you wouldn't really have a concept of what reality is, or you wouldn't really have a concept of anything other than this constant high. And when you have this leader who is all talking about all this hippie stuff and all this other stuff about how you're not really there or whatever, or nobody's really anybody or everyone's uh, equal and so on and so forth. And he's just saying all these things. Like, even if he said something that was, you know, completely erroneous or dangerous, like you're so high, it probably wouldn't even constantly high and never really having any kind of real responsibilities in his life yes i mean when you spend all your life basically with the prison well he just went to the hippie he just went after he got out of prison he just went straight to the hippie part. right part well the San prison Francisco. system was his nanny for most of his life and yeah. then when he got out of that bosom he fell into the bosom of uh you know he was used to living in a cell having nothing so he didn't mind being out on the streets you know, mm -hmm. that was better than being in jail. So it's not like he had this big desire to better himself and blah, blah, blah. And if you listen to his talkings, you know, he's one of those guys where he's yeah. like, you know, I don't I don't want to be a part of your system, man. Your system is lies, man. I, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So he never had a desire to. Well, apparently in 1974, he stated that his religion was Scientology. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> he identified as a Scientologist after studying the religion while he was incarcerated. He completed 150 hours of auditing before declaring Scientology too crazy. That's, that is so hilarious. 
I love how anything you can, anything we can tie back to Scientology, like all yeah. the better in my opinion. But yeah, that, can, can, that would just be a great advertisement for Scientology. <laughs> no, it'd be a great advertisement against Scientology. Even Charles Manson Even- thought it was too fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, on April 11, 2012, Manson was denied release at his 12th parole hearing, which he did not attend. After his March 27, 1997 parole hearing, Manson refused to attend any of his later hearings. The panel at that hearing noted that Manson had a history of controlling behavior, check, and mental health issues, check, including schizophrenia and paranoid delusional disorder, check, check, (laughs) and was too great a danger to be released. A big giant check. The panel also noted that Manson had received 108 rules violation reports, had no indication of remorse, no insight into the causative factors of the crimes, lacked understanding of the magnitude of the crimes, had an exceptional callous disregard for human suffering, and had no parole plans. It was determined that Manson would not be reconsidered for parole for another 15 years, i.e. not before 2027, at which time he would have been 92 years old, but that didn't end up happening at all because he died before that would come to pass. Yeah. So in his later life, um, you got the, so like in the eighties, Manson gave four interviews to the mainstream media. Um, the first was recorded at California medical facility and air June 13th, 1981. By Tom Snyder for NBC's The Tomorrow Show. The second was for San Quentin was recorded at San Quentin State Prison and aired March twenty or March seventh, nineteen eighty six, by Charlie Rose for the CBS News Night Watch. Uh, the third was Geraldo in eighty eight, and it was part. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know he's such a fucking joke. It was for his <laughs> uh, the journalist primetime special on Satanism. Ah, so it ties into satanic probably. Panic. And uh, at least as early as the uh, Snyder interview, Manson's forehead bore a swastika in the spot where the X carved during his trial had been. Yeah, he turned into a swastika at some point. Yeah. Um, after 1980... And you had Nicholas Shrek, who conducted an interview for Manson for his documentary, Charles Manson Superstar. Shrek was actually a part of uh, the Church of Satan. Oh, okay. I did not know that. And Shrek concluded that Manson was not insane, but merely acting that way out of frustration. Okay. Okay. Okay, buddy. Um, I'm just going to skip through a lot of this shit. Uh, well, if he got used to playing crazy to get people to leave him alone, maybe that became like a habit. And like he was just fucking just acting crazy all the time. That'd be an interesting thing to do, to be like, what would that what effect would that have on your mental uh, faculties and your psyche if you were just asked to act like you're crazy for a certain amount of time? Would you eventually convince yourself that you're crazy? So on January 1st, uh, 2007, Manson was suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding at California State Prison in Corcoran when he was rushed to Mercy Hospital in downtown Bakersfield. A source told the L.A. Times that Manson was seriously ill, and TMZ reported his doctors considered him, quote, too weak for surgery. He was returned to prison by January 6th. Whatever treatment he had received was not disclosed. On November 15, 2007, a source not authorized to speak on behalf of the Corrections Department confirmed that Manson had returned to a hospital in Bakersfield. 
In compliance with federal and state medical privacy laws, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation did not confirm this. He died from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer at the hospital four days later on November 9th. So he had a bunch of shit that took him out at once. Yeah, November 19th, yeah. Yeah, November 19th. Um, so um, there was one thing I wanted to mention on here. Henry Rollins? Yes, and his- yes, that's what I wanted to mention. So in 2010, the Los Angeles Times reported that Manson was caught with a cell phone in 2009 and had contacted people in California, New Jersey, Florida, and British Columbia. A spokesperson for the California Department of Corrections stated that it was not known if Manson had used the phone for criminal purposes. Manson also recorded an album of acoustic pop songs with additional production by Henry Rollins titled Completion. Only five copies were pressed, two belonging to Rollins, while the other three are presumed to have been with Manson. The album remains unreleased. That's the first time I've heard of that. And what? how does that make you feel? I know you're a huge fan of Henry Rollins. I mean, I'm a pretty big fan of Henry Rollins. I, I'm kind of bummed out to hear that. Although, as I'm looking on Wikipedia, I, there's no source for this. Yeah. So, oh, wait. Yeah, there is. I'm just a fucking dummy, apparently. Henry Rollins produced Charles Manson album. Former black flag, flag. Sorry, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> sorry about that. Black flag. Man, Josh, you just got really fucking racist and homophobic, like all at the same oh, time. Oh, like Charles Manson, who's the fucking racist. Yeah, maybe that's what he named his album. I don't know, but um. <laughs> Yeah, Henry Rollins was commissioned to help produce an album by Charles Manson, the punk rocker revealed last week. The incarcerated cult leader reportedly wrote to Rollins asking for help mixing and releasing an album of acoustic pop songs. Rollins agreed, finishing a never-released record called Completion. Rollins revealed his Manson collaboration at an event in Los Angeles on December 9th for public radio station KCRW, playing the song for the sold-out crowd, quoting... I can hear you all listening. I can hear you all listening to your hair grow, he joked. Whatever that means. Uh, in the 80s, Rollins was, quote, living in a moldy broom closet at the headquarters of SST Records, a California label that released albums for the Minutemen, Sonic Youth, and Rollins band Black Flag. A lawyer representing Manson wrote to SST asking them to help complete and release a collection of Manson's songs. Then, as now, Manson was serving life's uh, life sentence for his role in the Tate LaBianca murders. Rollins agreed to produce the songs, but a string of death threats forced SST to call off the project. In the end, the label pressed just five copies, which Rollins kept two, the other three with uh, Manson. In a 2008 interview with NME, Rollins admitted he and Manson had been pen pals, but made no mention of the album. Quote, he wrote me a letter out of the blue once and stated, I just saw... You on MTV and thought you were pretty cool, Rollins recalled. So we corresponded a few times in 1984. I'd just tell him about what we were doing with our new record, and he'd send back semi-lucid responses. He made references to the Beach Boys stealing his ideas, which sounded like sour grapes. At the time, I was very young, and having him write me letters made me feel intense and heavy, he said. I always know I'd have a letter in my P.O. box from him because... The woman behind the counter at the post office would give you this awful look. 
His letters would always have swastikas on them, so they were easy to spot. While there's no sign that completion will ever see release, Magic Bullet Records has announced a four-disc series of new Manson songs on the themes of, quote, mankind's non-sustainable environmental conditions. The first of these, Air, was released in August. Yeah, I think it's pretty fucked up that Henry Rollins would, like, work with such a piece of shit individual. Yeah. I mean, like... You know, I understand, like, it's a, you can like someone's music and not like who they are as a person, but, I mean, in this case, when... When this guy is, like, clearly a racist and, you know, was going... Had all these people killed, was going to blame it on black people to start a race war, and I don't know, man. It's like, dude, why would you... Why would you want to associate with someone like that? If you're not a journalist... If you're only doing it to be, quote, heavy and cool, like, that's pretty douchey. Like, that's a mark against Henry Rollins. But again, he was young. Oh, no. I mean, in 2000, yeah, when he was writing to him, he was young. But in 2008, you know, that's when the, you know, he was asked to help mix the shit. Okay. So, I don't know. Anyway, that's that's all we got for Charles Manson. Like I said, this is the heavily abridged version of what happened. And. (laughs) But yeah, anyway, uh, if you want to subscribe to our Patreon account or join or whatever the fuck, it's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. You can listen to the Beach Boys connection with Charles Manson on there that I'll be doing at some point in the next few days. Um, Happy birthday to me by the time you'll be hearing this. 30 years old. Good God. What have I done with my life? Not a whole lot. No, actually, this podcast has been a big uh, uh, feather in my hat, hat in my feather, whatever. Um, Cap. Cap. I've been glad, you know, this, I'm proud of this podcast and all, you know, you guys listening out there and all that. If you've made turning 30 uh, suck less and I feel less like a loser now that I at least have people who want (laughs) to listen to what me and Mike have to say every week. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, that's all we got. Hope this is a nice, you know, nice chunk of podcast for you for now. But until next time, uh, take care, and we'll come back uh, next week with a new cult for you to freak out about. Have a good night. See ya. What's up, everybody? Just want to remind everyone that my album, The Nightmare Inside You, is still up for sale, and we have new band t-shirts as well. All of this is in the description of this podcast, so check it out, and if you dig the music, maybe consider supporting me. Now enjoy some more of the album. retentive josh the anal retentive podcaster (laughs) josh the anal retentive cowboy (laughs) related to uh the anal retentive chef yeah i don't know what that is
their their mic is dropping. Probably a movie reference. I'm gonna say oh. no. It's an SNL reference. It oh, was a character okay, that, even, uh, even better. Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman played the anal retentive chef. Even even more obscure, an SNL reference of some kind, <laughs> uh, where you would have to have seen that exact episode and segment to understand. That's well, why there's for you. Was, there was more than one segment. It was actually a pretty popular segment with uh, with uh, Phil Hartman. Really, I've never heard of the anal retentive chef. Have you have you heard of Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer? Uh-uh. That was another one that Apparently was I'm not popular. as well versed on SNL as I thought I was. <laughs> I fucking hate how my phone always changes fuck to duck. That is infinitely frustrating. <laughs> it's like, stop trying to be my fucking parent, man. You know I'm trying to type fuck. Anyway. <laughs> Manson was seeing on the news when the Watts riots happened that that you know, oh shit, it's coming to pass. You know, what what these people were telling me in prison, it's actually happening. And that's when Mar- uh, Marilyn Manson, <laughs> that's when Charles Manson- You did it! I, I was I was afraid that I was, I was totally thinking I would be the one to do it. Because <laughs> before this, I sat down and record this podcast, folks, I was constantly like mixing those two up. I was like, oh, I don't really, okay, let's talk about Marilyn Manson. No, it's Charles Manson. You know, and then <laughs> Josh was the first one to do. Well, it. hey, Marilyn Manson picked a good good moniker because it's it's it <laughs> sticks in your mind easier than Charles, I guess, because it's both M words or whatever. Yeah, 